Good morning. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Scripture reading today is from the book of Romans, chapter 15, verses 18 through 24. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build up on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. This is God's word. We invite you to keep your Bibles open to Romans chapter 15 as we pray together this morning. God, as we open the book of Romans today and read these ancient words, I pray that you would equip us for the work in the world that you are calling us to take part in. I pray that you would give us wisdom, confidence in the fact that you are reaching into the world, that by your strength the world will be transformed, and Lord, that you use your people by your grace to bring this about. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us these things this morning from the book of Romans, and we ask that you would comfort us as we consider the path forward. We ask all these things, Lord, in the name of your Son. Amen. When I was a senior in high school, I took an art class that I assumed would be pretty easy. Now, I'm not the most arty person in the world, and even though I liked to draw when I was growing up, I also knew that I was not very good at it. But it's a high school art class, so I figured, how hard could it really be? It was just an opportunity for me to pad my GPA a little bit, and I thought, you know, not, not too much to worry about with this class. Our final project for this art class was a portrait, and I remember thinking I could knock it out early so I'd have time to study for my finals that I had coming up in other classes. I remember bringing my project to my teacher. I was pretty happy with it. I felt like I had done a pretty good job, and I handed it to my teacher, turning it in early, and I asked him what he thought of it, and he did not say, wow. This is amazing. This, we got to call a museum right now. Uh, he instead said, are you sure you're done with this? <laughs> and I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, if you're confident that this is your best work, that it's as good as it can be and that you're really happy with it, then sure, by all means, turn it in. And suddenly I wasn't so sure about whether or not it was very good. So I took it back and I kept on working on it throughout the rest of the week. And that kind of drove me crazy because how do you know when something like that is actually done? How do you know when the work is finished? In math class, when you've solved the last problem, there's no confusion about whether or not you're done. Two plus two is four, check, turn it in. 
When you get the answer, you're done. But with an art project, it's not that simple. It's a feeling that I have become familiar with working as a pastor. Because how do you know when you have discipled someone enough? How do you know when you have prayed enough about something? How do you know when the sermon is actually finished and you can stop going back to edit things at 9 a.m. on Sunday morning? How do you know when you have actually reached a community with the gospel? How do you know when the work is done? Because there are only so many hours in the day and there are lots of other things that also need our attention. That is the question that intrigues me about the passage that we're looking at this morning from Romans 15. Because evidently the Apostle Paul knew how to answer those questions. In this part of the book, Paul is outlining his plans, his hopes to visit the city of Rome. Back in chapter 1, he explained that he has wanted to make this trip for a long time, but his desire to travel to Italy is not the same as ours might be. We want to go to see the Colosseum and to eat a pile of food, but Paul saw Rome as a strategic part of his plans to advance the kingdom of God. At the time, in the first century, Rome was at the very height of its glory. It was the largest city in the world by a wide margin. It was the only place on earth that was home to over a million people. It was the cultural center of the Roman Empire, influencing the lives of millions, perhaps, some scholars think, as many as half the people living on planet earth. It was the hub of a vast trade network extending far beyond the borders of the empire itself, and in its markets, Ideas and philosophies and theologies were exchanged along with spices and textiles. So for Paul, Rome was the key to reaching the whole world with the gospel. He's wanted to come for a long time, but prior commitments have prevented him from making the trip. Basically, from the day that he became a Christian, Paul has been on the move, bringing the gospel from Jerusalem to areas in what is now Turkey and Greece Multiple missionary journeys brought him to important towns like Thessalonica, Corinth, and Philippi, where he preached the gospel in synagogues and city squares. And so he says in verse 22 of our passage, this is why I have been so often hindered from coming to you. He's been singularly focused on the mission at hand and chose to go to extraordinary lengths to commit himself to that work. He even chose not to get married so that he would be free to boldly proclaim the message of Christianity, even when doing so put him in danger. And he's been committed to the churches that now exist in all of these towns. Most of the books of the New Testament that we read today are letters to churches and church leaders that live and work in those regions, because even when Paul wasn't there in person, he was burdened for the spiritual health of these people. He confronted false teaching and disunity in these congregations, and theological misunderstandings, and he reinforced the gospel. He cared for these churches so deeply that he risked his life for them and delayed his lifelong dream of going to Rome so that he could continue to look after them. But now, something evidently has changed. Paul is making plans to visit Rome, and then after that, to go to Spain. Spain is the frontier where there are lots of people, but no one preaching the gospel and no church. 
The Romans had only conquered that area about a century earlier, so it was essentially like the Wild West of the ancient Roman Empire, and Paul wanted to get there and start the work that he had been called to do. And one of his main aims in writing this letter to the church in Rome is to encourage, him, or encourage them to partner with him in his work as he goes to Spain. He says in verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. As the gospel moves into a new part of the world, Paul is establishing a new base of operations and support in the city of Rome. So at the end of this letter, he appeals to the Christians there, people that he's never met, in a city that he has never visited, to prepare for the work that is now ahead of them. And we can summarize his appeal with three points. How, where, and why now? First, in verses 18 and 19, he describes how it is that the gospel will come to those who do not know it. Second, he explains where the gospel must go in verses 20 and 21. And finally, he explains in the conclusion of the passage why the time to go is right now. He starts in verse 18 saying, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. There's a sense in which, in writing this whole letter, Paul is trying to sell himself to these Roman Christians. He's hoping that they will become partners who financially support his mission to Spain. So, he must navigate the perennially awkward thing that is the pastoral job interview. He needs to convince them that he is worthy of their investment while avoiding the impression that he is full of himself. For Paul, that is a unique challenge because he has quite a resume. He's established churches that are thriving. He's counseled some of them through controversy and strife. He has successfully argued an important theological case in Jerusalem among the other apostles, and he has boldly proclaimed the gospel in the face of strong opposition and against threats against his life. When it comes to figuring out the best strategy for reaching Spain, Paul is as close, as close to a sure bet as the Romans are ever going to get. But Paul doesn't say any of that. He doesn't list all of his accomplishments and the things that uh, he could point to and say, see, this is why I, I'm a trustworthy missionary for you to send into the field. He does not say any of that because he knows he knows that even though he may plant the seeds of the gospel and another may water them, it is God and God alone who makes them grow. Even though it would be easy for him to boast, he explains elsewhere in 2 Corinthians that he will only boast in his weaknesses, which Christ overcomes so that Christ will get all of the glory. So he says to the church in Rome in verse 18, I will not venture to speak of anything but what Christ has accomplished through me. Paul knows that he is only a vessel of the truth for, that, 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 that Christ uses to bring the truth into the lives of the people that he's worked with along the way. Even though he is a man of righteous character and honor, it is not Paul's power or ability or charisma or persuasiveness that has brought the Gentiles to obedience, as he says here. Jesus is the one who has accomplished that, and Paul has just been the tool in his hand. Specifically, he says, it happened by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, and by the power of the Spirit of God. Paul has faithfully proclaimed the gospel, and his life has testified to it. The life that he has led before these people 
has served to authenticate the truth that he is preaching about. But Paul says that even that, even his preaching and his life is something that Christ has brought about. God has validated that message with miraculous signs and wonders, and the Holy Spirit has convicted hearts that there is sin in every person, and therefore every person stands under the just wrath of God, but that in love God has made salvation for them in the death and resurrection of His Son. The Holy Spirit has brought that, brought that gospel message to bear in the lives of these people, and Paul knows that. He has, he has made the seeds of faith grow. Paul's ministry is a good reminder to every Christian that our responsibility, our job description, is to faithfully speak the gospel and to live in a way that aligns with it and testifies to the gospel, and then to let the Holy Spirit do the heavy lifting. We plant the seeds of faith, God makes them grow. This is what Paul has been doing for the last two decades, and now, he says in verse 19, from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Illyricum is a region north of Greece in what is now Albania. So if you're picturing a map of Europe and you, you, you picture the, the boot that is Italy, right across the water from the heel of that boot is Illyricum. Paul has successfully reached an area that extends for more than a thousand miles of coastline. It would be like evangelizing the entire east coast of the United States of America. So Paul has an impressive resume. He could go on and on and on about how qualified he is to be sent to Spain, but instead of that, he deflects attention from himself and credits the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for the fruitfulness of his ministry, the ministry that he has carried out. Because the way that God reaches the lost is by his own power, worked out in the faithful and fruitful effort of his people. By grace, God uses imperfect servants to carry a perfect and holy message. People like Paul, people like you and me, we are the tools that God uses to bring the gospel into the world. The church is the way that God advances his kingdom. So Paul is telling these believers in Rome that if we long to see the gospel take root in Spain, it will only happen through the labor of the people that God has called into his service. But Paul also knows that God uses people in different ways. I am not a golfer, but I do know just enough about golf to know that you probably should not try to play an entire round of golf with a putter, or you probably won't finish. It may be funny for a minute, haha, you're going to tee off with a putter, but by the time you've spent an hour putting the ball down the fairway, it's going to lose its entertainment value pretty quickly. There are different clubs that a golfer uses for a reason. Drivers and sand wedges and putters all have the same goal of getting the ball in the hole, but they each do different things, and none of them are any good at doing the things that the others are designed to do. Paul made basically this same point about God's people in 1 Corinthians. He describes us as different parts of a body, and the different parts have different purposes. They are not more or less valuable than one another, even if the work that they do does vary in its importance and necessity. God didn't make everyone to think or act or serve in the same way, even if they are all called to participate in reaching the same goal. Paul is not asking everyone to go to, to Spain with him. 
He says in verse 20, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named lest I build on someone else's foundation. Paul has been given a passion that few others share. He is constrained by a longing to go where the work is the hardest and the obstacles that the gospel must overcome are the greatest. And his ambition isn't one that many others share, even if they are glad to see it done because they are all participating in moving the ball toward the hole. And his ambition isn't one that many others share. Paul wants to go where no one knows the name of Jesus. He is burdened for the lost in a place where there is no debate over the gospel, no arguments about it, no controversy over it because it has never been spoken there. He doesn't want to build on someone else's foundation because his work is building foundations. In fact, that's been his job description basically since the day he became a believer. Up to that point in his life, he had made a career out of persecuting Christians, but one day when he was on his way to hunt down more of them in Damascus, Jesus confronted him and changed his life forever and gave him the assignment of bringing the gospel to far-flung places where people do not know the name of Jesus. But here in Romans 15, Paul doesn't tell that story. He doesn't appeal to the fact that Jesus himself commissioned him for work like going to Spain, even though I think that would have been a pretty convincing way to get these Roman believers on board with this whole Spain outreach idea, but he doesn't say it. Instead, he quotes from Isaiah 52. He says, quoting Isaiah 52, As it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. God's aim is to reach the lost, to bring understanding and sight. Paul looks back through the Old Testament he so loved as a Pharisee, and in the blinding light of the glory of Christ, he sees the love of God for the nations and the people of Spain. That's the goal. That's the hole off in the distance that we need to get the ball in. To see Christ treasured in Spain and all around the world. And every Christian is called to be a part of getting there. That verse is in the Roman Bibles too. And Paul is reminding them that they've been given a part to play in this same assignment, even if they don't all play the same part in carrying it out. Some are called to faithfulness and Christ-like character in their work as teachers. Others are called to faithfulness and Christ-like character in their work as farmers or builders or homemakers or merchants or students or soldiers. Paul is called to faithfulness and Christ-like character on the edge of the map. That is where the gospel must go. All of them are part of it. Every Christian has a role to play in seeing Christ treasured and advancing the kingdom of God. This is why I think Paul doesn't reference his resume or the specifics of his calling, because he's saying, we are all in this together. The gospel must go to Spain, and the time to go is right now. Paul says something stunning in verses 22 and 23. He says, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered in coming to you, but now, I no longer have any room for work in these regions. What in the world can Paul possibly mean by that? The region that he's referring to, the one that reaches from Greece all the way around to Jerusalem, is home to hundreds of thousands of people, maybe even millions at this point in the first century. And at this point in church history, only a fraction of a percent 
of that population is Christian. False teachers are still attacking churches. Disunity still threatens to tear congregations apart. But Paul says, there isn't room for any more work for me to do. There is not room. If someone came to you and said, I've got a great idea. I don't think anybody's thought of this before. I want to open a Dunkin' Donuts in Boston, Massachusetts. You would probably be skeptical about the, the idea because there's one already basically on every corner. You might say, is there room for another Dunkin' Donuts in Boston, Massachusetts? Is that what Paul thinks is happening here? There's just no more room for him to operate in this area, this thousand-mile stretch where a fraction of a percent of the people who live there are Christian right now? There's just no more room for Paul anymore. That would be ridiculous. Hundreds of thousands of people have still never heard the gospel, still never even heard the name of Jesus. There's lots of work still to be done, and that does not seem complicated to me. But Paul says, I ran out of room for ministry. He says, my job is done. He looks at the work. It's not difficult for him, apparently, to say, the job is done. No more room. I think the reason for this is because Paul trusts that churches will carry on and that God will sustain them in gospel ministry. All along the way from Jerusalem to Greece, there are faithful, if still imperfect, local churches led by godly elders who are committed to teaching from Scripture and reaching the lost. And Paul is going where there are none. Up to this point, this has really been a sermon about missions, about the ways that God calls the church and the people of His global church family, and He equips them, certain people within that church family, to carry the gospel to distant lands. We look at Paul and we say, look at the way that God has equipped him for carrying the gospel to a distant land where no one knows the name of Jesus. But Paul's comment in verse 23 when he says, there was no more room for work in these regions, changes the way that I take Paul's point here, and it even changes the way that I think about Paul and his work as a whole. Most of the time we think about Paul as a missionary, and he was a missionary and an apologist and a theologian, but because of this passage, I think Paul was first and foremost a church planter. He knew that the world needs healthy, gospel-centered, evangelistically committed churches because that is how God advances His kingdom, brings salvation to the lost, and raises up believers to maturity in faith. Looking at the book of Acts, where we get to see a broad view of Paul's ministry philosophy. Tim Keller has pointed out that Paul's ministry, wherever he traveled, involved three parts. First, when he arrived, he would evangelize, proclaim the gospel in public places, in homes, and in one-on-one conversations. Second, he would incorporate the people who received the gospel into a community. These are people from diverse backgrounds who had little in common before coming to faith in Christ and being united under the gospel of Christ, Paul would remind them that under the gospel, they were a family. And then third, after gathering those people together, he would raise up leaders in the congregation to serve as elders, men who were responsible for the oversight and spiritual health of the others so that the church that now existed in this city would not need Paul anymore. The pattern we see repeated in Acts is not just one of evangelism and conversion of individuals, but the formation of churches that are committed to the same effort. 
Paul knew that there was still so much work to do in the places that he had been. Hundreds of thousands of people had still never heard the name of Christ, but faithful churches in towns throughout the region were there to carry the torch. And now, as he sets his sights on Spain, it is with the hopeful anticipation that one day churches there will do the same thing. For 2,000 years, local churches, the vast majority of them, small and unremarkable, like the one we are a part of right now, served their communities, preached the gospel, and testified to its truth with righteous character. They have united God's people in holy fellowship, worship, and brotherhood under the gospel. They have raised up godly men and women who have carried the gospel to the ends of the earth. The local church is how God does this work. Paul's appeal to the believers in Rome is that churches are how God brings the message of salvation to the lost, wherever they are, so that the time to plant gospel-preaching churches is right now. And as true as that was in the first century, it is just as true today. The world needs more healthy churches. We don't have to look very far to see that need. When I moved to Massachusetts, I was coming from Texas, where I had served a local church for 10 years. In the city where I lived, there were churches everywhere. Not all of them were healthy, not all of them were faithfully preaching the gospel, but the fact was, nobody in that town had to travel very far to get to one that was. When I came to Westgate, started meeting the people here who are part of this church, I was amazed at how far some people had to travel to get here on a Sunday morning. In some cases, that's because there is no gospel-preaching church in the town where they live, or in the next town over, or in the next town over. It's hard to be an effective witness to the gospel in places where there is little to no Christian community. And that is, in part, why fewer and fewer people in our area identify as Christians. Paul was willing to leave people he loved. It's not hard to see throughout the New Testament in in Acts and in the letters that he wrote to these churches that his love for these congregations was genuine, but he was willing to leave these people that he loved and go to the frontier because churches were what the world needs. And because he knew that he was leaving behind growing, multiplying churches that were reaching the lost without him. This passage from Romans 15 is a glimpse into Paul's mind that helps us see that we live in the sort of frontier that he longed to reach in Spain. We live in the sort of place that Paul wanted to get to. And the strategy that we employ for reaching our neighbors must include church planting. Because even if we commit ourselves fully to evangelism, If we love our neighbors well and faithfully share our faith in winsome and compelling ways, studies tell us that we will still be fighting an uphill battle. Tim Keller makes the case, a compelling case, I think, that the only way to significantly increase the number of Christians in a city is by significantly increasing the number of new churches. Because church planting reaches people in places that we won't be able to. Established churches like Westgate are good at reaching people who already believe the gospel. New churches are better at reaching people who don't. Think about your own experience. Think about your story. When you came to Westgate, were you coming here from another church? 
Maybe you had just moved to the area, needed to find a new church to be part of. Maybe you were coming from an unhealthy church, but you had enough doctrinal, doctrinal awareness to know that, that it was an unhealthy church, so you left and wound up finding your way here to Westgate. Maybe you grew up in the church, and during college you drifted away, but afterward you wanted the sort of support and community for your children that you had as a kid. In the conversations that I've had with people at Westgate over the past six, almost seven years, these are the stories that I've heard again and again and again. Rarely do I hear that someone heard the gospel as an adult, believed, and the first church that they connected with was this one. That's something that we long to address. It's why we host the Life on Mission Conference to train us in how to effectively share our faith. We engage in community outreach. We teach classes on evangelism and discipleship. We pray regularly for our friends and family members who don't know the gospel. But the fact is that established churches like Westgate are fighting an uphill battle and new churches are good at things that we aren't. There is data to back this up, and it's crazy. As new churches grow, churches that are younger than five years old, one to two-thirds of their new members are coming from a completely unchurched background. Established churches like Westgate, as churches like Westgate grow, statistics tell us that 80 to 90 percent of growth in a church like Westgate is transfers from other churches. If that's you this morning, I want you to know, first of all, I'm glad you're here. I'm not upset that you're here. Super glad you're here. It's wonderful to be together. But we need to recognize that new churches have a a capacity to reach people who do not know the name of Christ in a way that we will always struggle to reach them. New churches see an average of 10 conversions per year for every 100 members. Established churches like Westgate see an average of three conversions per year for every 100 members. If we want to reach our city, if we want to see Christ treasured in Metro West Boston, we need more churches. That's the facts. We could commit ourselves to evangelism, and we should. We should train ourselves and be bold in reaching out with the gospel to our friends and neighbors and family members. We should absolutely give ourselves fully to that cause. But we must also acknowledge Helping new churches get established will reach the lost in ways that we will always struggle to reach them. We will not get glory for that. We won't get credit. We won't be able to put on a website, look at how many baptisms we had at Westgate this year. We will only honor Christ by seeing it done somewhere else. We need to join in the work of getting them started. So one of our core commitments at Westgate is church planting. We believe that fulfilling the Great Commission is more than making individual disciples or growing existing churches. It also means establishing new churches wherever disciples are being made. This is particularly true in New England, where less than 4% of people attend a gospel-preaching church, and in Metro West Boston, where there is approximately one gospel-preaching church for every 10,000 people. There simply are not enough gospel-preaching churches for Christ to be increasingly treasured throughout the Metro West. Church planting is an effective way for established churches to reach new areas and new generations with the gospel, and often brings renewal and revitalization to the parent church as we trust God sacrificially and learn from the focus, urgency, and insights that new churches can provide. 
We have committed to that. We've put it in writing. It's one of our core commitments. But if we're honest, we've done little to see it done in the last 10 years. Lord willing, that will change because we live in the sort of frontier that Paul longed to see reached with the gospel. We know how they'll be reached. We certainly know where the work is needed. In the first century, Paul had to determine when the work in one place was done so that he could move on and start the work in the next place. But in 21st century Metro West Boston, we live in the next place. So the time to start the work is right now because the church is how God, by his grace, will reach the world with the gospel. Let's pray together. Father God, we praise you today for the ways that you have been at work in building up your church for 2,000 years. In grace, you've reached into the world through your people, working powerfully to bring the lost to salvation through the faithful labor of men and women just like each of us. So we pray that you would be at work in and through us to reach our communities, through our personal evangelism and our commitment also to see new churches established in this region. For the salvation of our neighbors and for your glory, we pray for these things in the name of Christ. Amen.